All right, Hamlet, Act Two. Uh, we start off in the scene one with Polonius talking to his servant Rinaldo, and Rinaldo is going to go to Paris, and Polonius wants him to spy on Laertes. Uh, and he actually, you know, makes up, tells him that he wants him to, uh, you know, don't go directly, you know, just kind of say that you've heard of Laertes and then make some accusations about him and say he's done these bad things and see how people react. And that way you'll know whether he's um, uh, really has been doing those things or not. And this scene, I mean, it accomplishes a lot of characterization for Polonius very quickly. Um, after all of that kind of sage advice he had been giving Laertes, here he is spying on his own children, uh, which certainly undermines his authority. Uh, also, Polonius is, is a character that uh, happens sometimes in Shakespeare. He is very entertaining for an audience, but very annoying to the other characters in the play. Uh, the nurse in Romeo and Juliet is a similar kind of thing. And we see Polonius here, you know, he actually forgets, you know, loses his train of thought, you know, says, what was I about to say? Uh, says, oh, yes, no, yes, now I remember. Um, and he tells him the, 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 he tells Ronaldo the reason he wants him to do this. Uh, look around line 62. He says, your bait of falsehood takes this carp of truth. And thus do we of wisdom and of reach, with windlasses and with assays of bias, by indirections find directions out. So he's saying you don't go at it directly. Uh, you, you go at it with windlasses and with assays of bias. Uh, now, says a bias is a, a metaphor from bowling, uh, where you don't uh, the balls are, are, are weighted or you know biased, so you can't throw it directly at the pins. You have to let you have to have a curved uh, trajectory to get it. Um, and that idea of not you know not coming directly at something, coming at it indirectly, uh, is something that happens quite a lot in different contexts in Hamlet. So after Ronaldo leaves. Then in comes Ophelia, and she says that, um, she, she reports, My lord, as I was sitting in my closet, this is around line 77, Lord Hamlet, with his doublet all unbraced, no hat upon his head, his stockings fouled, unguarded, and down guided to his ankle, pale as his shirt, his knees knocking each other, and with a look so piteous in purport, as if he had been lucid out of hell to speak of horrors, he comes before me. So get, get the image here. Hamlet is coming to her really half-dressed. His, his shirt isn't, isn't uh, buttoned. He's not wearing a hat, which, you know, anywhere you were in public in the Renaissance, you were wearing a hat. Um, and that phrase, as if he had been lucid out of hell, has to make us think of the ghost. Now, what does Polonius say? Mad for thy love? My lord, I do not know. Uh, Polonius is certain from the very first of what the problem is with Hamlet, and he never wavers in that certainty. Uh, Ophelia, I think, is a bit wiser. She says she doesn't know. Then Polonius asks, well, what did he say? And like the ghost in the first scene, he doesn't speak. You expect him to speak, but he is silent. 
But Ophelia explains not what he said, but what he did. And I want you to think about, just picture this in your mind, what this would look like. He took me by the wrist and held me hard. Then goes he to the length of all his arm. He extended her you know, away from him at arm's length. And thus, with his other hand, thus o'er his brow, he falls to such perusal of my face as he would draw it. So with his hand on his forehead, you know, his, her, he's holding her by the wrist at arm's length, and his other hand is on his forehead staring at her. Long stayed he so. At last, a little shaking of mine arm, and thrice his head thus waving up and down, he raised a sigh, so piteous and profound, as it did seem to shatter all his bulk and end his being. That done, he lets me go. And with his head over his shoulder turned, he seemed to find his way without his eyes. For out of doors he went without their helps, and to the last, bended their light on me. Now, that's a very weird thing. Is, And it's never really clear exactly what's going on here. Is, is this the antic disposition that he, he's putting on? Is this going to talk to Ophelia and then realizing he can't talk to her? Uh, is It's really not clear. Now, for Polonius, it's very clear. Uh, he says, this is the very ecstasy of love. He's just head over heels in love with you. And we, of course, are in a privileged position. We know that that's, you know, that's really not the heart of the problem, uh, that the fact that he saw his father's ghost and is now has to avenge his father's death. Um, and he asks... Uh, but Polonius, again, is sure that, oh, well, this is just, you know, lovesickness, and asks, uh, have you given him any hard words of late? And she says, no, my good lord, but as you did command, I did repel his letters and denied his access to me. Says, that hath made him mad. Now, you, you know that if, if Ophelia said she'd said anything harsh, she said, well, that would make him mad. He's not looking for uh, the, the truth. He's looking for confirmation of what he already believes. He has a kind of an absolute certainty uh, that makes him comic in uh, in Hamlet. Um, so they're going to go tell the king and queen about it. Now, scene two starts with the king and queen talking to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And notice that they're they're concerned as as the king says as claudia says about hamlet's transformation uh so obviously he has been acting differently not just with ophelia and what they what he asks rosencrantz and guildenstern to do is to find out what's wrong with him notice that claudius is asking the school friends to spy on hamlet in a parallel way that Polonius was asking Rinaldo to spy on Laertes. We've got these parallel spying fathers here. Uh, Polonius was sending his uh, guy to college. They're getting friends from college to spy on Hamlet. Uh, but it's one of the many kind of, of echoes and parallels that are set up throughout the, the story and throughout the, the, the main plot and the subplot of the story. Then we get uh, news from uh, ambassadors to Norway, um, uh, and Polonius announces them. but says, I have found the very cause of Hamlet's lunacy. This is line 50. Um, and he says, but before you hear that, you have to hear the ambassadors. 
And look at what Gertrude says in, uh, when Claudius tells her this. He tells me, my dear Gertrude, he hath found the very head and source of all your son's distemper. And Gertrude says, I doubt it is no other but the main, his father's death and our o'er-hasty marriage. So Gertrude knows exactly what's up. Of course, that's what he's upset about. He told us, we found that out in his first soliloquy. But we get the ambassador come in, Voltamond comes in uh, with Cornelius. Um, and notice another kind of echo. Shakespeare could have easily, in fact, it probably would have been easier to have a single messenger, but he has a pair of them, Voltamond and Cornelius. Uh, just as we have a pair of school friends, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. The the play is full of these kinds of rhyming pairs. Um, but the Voltaman comes and gives the story about, and remember, Fortinbras was the military threat at the in the beginning of the play. In line 69, uh, it says, Fortinbras receives rebuke from Norway, and in fine, makes vow before his uncle nevermore to give the assay of arms against your majesty. Uh, now notice that it's Norway is Fortinbras's uncle, in exactly, of course, the same way that Claudius is Hamlet's uncle. Uh, and uh, Norway is taking Fortinbras in hand. Claudius is trying to take his nephew in hand. Again, the, you, there's all of these kind of uh, echoing plot lines going on. Um, but then Polonius announces uh, what he's going to talk about. And uh, Look at, look at his speech, line 86. My liege and madam, to expostulate what majesty should be, what duty is, why day is day, night night, and time is time, were nothing but to waste night, day, and time. Therefore, since brevity is the soul of wit, and tediousness the limbs and outward flourishes, I will be brief." Well, this is many. The speech is many things, but it is not brief. Uh, and again, it, it displays Polonius's complete lack of self-awareness, uh, and he keeps playing with the, uh, you know, punning and playing with language and uh, exasperating the queen. And finally, he gets to this love letter, uh, this love poem that uh, Hamlet wrote to Ophelia. Um, he says, "Doubt that the stars are fire." Doubt that the sun doth move, doubt truth to be a liar, but never doubt I love. Now, think about that poem, doubt. Now, doubt means to suspect or disbelieve here. Uh, you, you might not believe that the stars are fire. Well, nobody could disbelieve that, obviously. You might not believe that the sun doth move. Okay, wait a minute. That actually is kind of a scientific controversy at the time. The question of whether the earth or the sun, whether the sun moves around the earth or the earth moves around the sun, was a uh, a controversial topic at the time. So now it, it's phrased as if this were just as certain as the stars are fire, but this one is actually not as certain. Then we have doubt truth to be a liar. Now, that's obviously true. But notice that the word doubt has changed its meaning. Uh, now, doubt means uh, disbelieve. Uh, it means, uh, or uh, now doubt means believe. It had meant disbelieve before. Now, doubt means believe. Believe truth to be a liar. Uh, 
but never doubt I love. Um, so e- even in this little and, and very kind of simple poem is full of the kinds of ambiguities and questions that the whole play is like, is full of. Um, so Polonius says that, you know, Hamlet had sent this letter to her, this love poem to her, and um, he, he told his daughter, line 141, uh, Lord Hamlet is a prince, out of thy star, this must not be. And then I prescripts gave her that she should lock herself from his resort, admit no messengers, receive no tokens, which done, she took the fruits of my advice, and he, repelled, a short tale to make, and again, this is not going to be a short tale, fell into a sadness, then to a fast, thence to a watch, thence to a weakness, thence to a lightness, and by this declension into the madness wherein now he raves, and all we mourn for. Um, Now notice how different this is than what he actually told Ophelia. He said, don't go around with Hamlet. He's a horny young man and he'll take advantage of you. That's not what he tells the king and queen. He says, oh, he's too far above you, a prince out of thy star. You know, he's he's too high above you. Um, and the, they think, you know, could this be it? And so, well, it may be. And Bolonius, again, is absolutely certain. I will find where truth is hid, though it were hid indeed within the center. Um and he says, well, here's how we're going to test this, line 163. Be you and I, he says to the king, behind an heiress then, mark the encounter. That is, we'll get, we'll get uh, Ophelia to talk to Hamlet, and we'll hide behind a tapestry, an heiress, a curtain, uh, and overhear what they're saying. So it's another spying uh, scheme that he has. Now, look when the king and queen leave and Polonius stays to talk to Hamlet, who is coming in. And uh, look at their conversation. Line one seventy. How does my good lord? How does my good lord Hamlet? Well, God of mercy, do you know me, my lord? Excellent. Well, you are a fishmonger, not I, my lord. Then I wish you were so honest a man. Honest, my lord. I, sir. To be honest, as this world goes, is to be one man picked out of ten thousand. That's very true, my lord. For if the sun breed maggots in a dead dog, being of good kissing carrion, have you a daughter? I have, my lord. Let her not walk in the sun. Conception is a blessing, but as your daughter may conceive, friend, look to it. And Polonius says in an aside, How say you by that, still harping on my daughter? Yet he knew me not at first. He said I was a fishmonger. He is far gone. And truly, in my youth, I suffered much extremity for love, very near this. I'll speak to him again. So look what's happened there. The Hamlet is, this is the antic disposition he's putting on. And here, I think it's pretty clear this isn't craziness. This is him making fun of, uh, pretending to be crazy and making fun of Polonius, you know, calling him a fishmonger, um, you know, asking about his daughter. Uh, look at the the, uh, uh, the next thing he says. Uh, Polonius asks him, what do you read, my lord? 
Words, words, words. He's taking an over-literal meaning. He says, what is the matter, my lord? Between who? He says, I mean the matter that you read, my lord. So finally he's got an unambiguous uh, question. He says, slander, sir, for the satirical rogue says here that old men have gray beards, that their faces are wrinkled, their eyes purging thick amber and plum tree gum. Now he's describing... Polonius, this old man in front of him, and that they have a plentiful lack of wit. He says, All which, sir, though I most powerfully and potently believe, yet I hold it not honesty to have it set down. For yourself, sir, shall grow as old as I, if, like a crab, you could go backward. If you could age backward, you'd be the same age as I am. And Polonius says, Though this be madness, yet there's method in it. Uh, He says, "There's, There's a method to this madness. He asked him, will you walk out of the air, my lord, into my grave? Indeed, that's out of the air. How pregnant sometimes his replies are. A happiness that madness hits on, yet which reason and sanity could not so perspirously be delivered of. I will leave him, and suddenly contrive the means of meeting between him and my daughter. Now look at that last little exchange, echoes the language and the ideas at their first little exchange. Or the earlier, uh, earlier, Hamlet said, uh, the, the son breed maggots. Uh, now we've got, or, you know, conception is a blessing. Polonius says, pregnant are the replies that may be delivered of. He's using the language of pregnancy. Um, he says, will you walk out of the air? Earlier, Hamlet said, let her not walk in the sun. Uh, he says he'll walk into his grave. Uh, earlier he said, talking about a dead dog and kissing carrion. So the topics and the ideas, even on the, that kind of micro-linguistic level, keep echoing back and forth. Uh, and so Polonius leaves, and then in come Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And notice how differently he speaks with them than he spoke with uh, Polonius. Uh, Polonius was the butt of the joke, but he's kind of joking along with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Um, the, you know, they say, uh, uh, how do you both? It says, as the indifferent children of the earth, happy and that we are not over happy. On fortune's cap, we are not the very button, nor the sole of her shoes. Neither, my lord. Then you live about her waist or in the middle of her favors. Faith, her privates, we. So th- this is the kind of friendly banter, you know, they're kind of of, of making uh, making kind of, uh, you know, body references, but doing it in the way that friends do. I mean, he's not making fun of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern here. Um, and he asked them, um, you know, wh- what's the news? There's none, my lord, but that the world's grown honest. Uh, then is doomsday near. That topic of honesty came up with uh, uh, in with Polonius. Remember, uh, so he asked them, "Well, why why are you here?" Um, this is nine two forty four. Were you not sent for? Is it your own inclining? Is it a free visitation? Come, come, deal justly with me. Come, come, nay, speak. Uh, again, we get silence instead of speech. And notice Hamlet knows 
Odd obviously knows that they were sent by his parents to spy on him. He just wants them to admit it. And they said, what should we say, my lord, says Guildenstern? Oh, anything but to the purpose. You were sent for, and there is a kind of confession in your looks, which your modesties have not craft enough to color. I know the good king and queen have sent for you. To what end, my lord, they're still playing dumb. That you must teach me. And then he launches into a speech around line 265. Notice, too, that the, this whole exchange with uh, Hamlet and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern is in prose, uh, which suggests the kind of easy familiarity he has with them. He says, I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth, forgone all custom of exercises, and indeed it goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame, the earth, seems to me a sterile promontory. This most excellent canopy, the air, look you, this brave overhanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire, why, it appears to me nothing but a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors. What a piece of work is a man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals, and yet, to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me, nor woman neither, though by your smiling you seem to say so. So they've you know, made a smile. He says, no, I, I'm, not, I'm not making a gay joke here when I say man delights not me. Um, but notice, and that's actually a very famous, the what a piece of work of man is man, uh, is a famous, uh, one of the many famous parts in, in Hamlet. And the, uh, the way Hamlet expresses these ideas, even in saying how these things don't mean anything to him anymore, he expresses in a way that it clearly does mean something very deeply to him. Um, and these kind of philosophical uh, and, and poetic things that Hamlet has to say are so striking. It's part of the reason the character has been had such a hold on uh, Western culture since it was created. Um, but even that, it, it, it's all, after that majestic speech, it ends with that deflation. It says, "No, nor woman, neither." Uh, you know, he's it, it's uh, gets to smutty humor at the end. Um, and what they say, well, if you don't delight in man, uh, you won't like the players that are coming. So, oh, the players! And uh, Hamlet is very excited by of this. Obviously, he's a you know he's a he's a, a theater goer. He likes it. Uh, he asks you know where they come from and what they're they're doing there. He's very interested in all of the details of this. Um, and when the 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 flourish around line three twelve, the players come in, and Hamlet tells them, "You are welcome." But my uncle, father, and aunt, mother are deceived. In what, my dear lord? I am but mad north-northwest. When the wind is southerly, I know a hawk from a handsaw. So, first of all, the kind of uncle, father, and aunt, mother really sums up his, his disgust at the, in, quote-unquote, incestuous marriage. Um, and it's saying, I'm but mad north-northwest. 
well, there is no such direction as north northwest. Um, and he says, when the wind is southerly, I know a hawk from a handsaw. And look at, uh, at your footnote. will tell you, a hawk was a pickaxe, also called a hack, here apparently used with a play on hawk, the bird. A handsaw was a carpenter's tool, apparently with a play on hernshaw, a heron. So the two things, the hawk and a handsaw, are very different, but actually a hawk could be a tool like a handsaw, and a handsaw could be the name for a bird like a hawk. So the two things that he clearly knows that are different are not so clearly different. Again, it's very typical of the way this play works. Um, Then in comes Polonius, and he's going, you know, they already know the news, so they're going to make fun of Polonius, who tells them that uh, they've come in, line 340, the best actors in the world, either for tragedy, comedy, history, pastoral, Pastoral comical, historical pastoral, uh, it's kind of any any combination of, of uh, genres. You know, scene indivisible or poem unlimited. Seneca cannot be too heavy, nor Plautus too light. Those are the classic Roman playwrights, Seneca of tragedy and Plautus of comedy. Uh, Shakespeare actually adapted one of uh, Plautus's uh, plays, uh, the Comedy of Errors, um, so, and again, we get a chance to make fun of Polonius here. Uh, but when the players come in, um, Hamlet wants them to speak a speech for him. Uh, and notice he says that, uh, he talks about the, the, the play. He says, a line 380, an excellent play, well digested in the scenes, set down with as much modesty as cunning. I remember... One said there were no salads in the lines to make the matter savory, nor no matter in the phrase that might in, indict the author of affectation, but called it an honest method, as wholesome as sweet, and by very much more handsome than fine. One speech in it I chiefly loved. T'was Aeneas' tale to Dido, and thereabout of it especially when he speaks of Priam's slaughter. If it live in your memory, begin at this line. Now, first of all, okay, what is this? This is uh, this is from the Aeneid. This is the kind of the the central work of classical literature. This is Virgil's great epic, the Aeneid. The Aeneid, and this is the part where Aeneas is speaking to Dido, the, the woman who falls madly in love with him and he with her, and tells about the fall of Troy. Of course, the fall of Troy is another kind of kind of central uh, myths of classical literature. And Priam was the king of Troy, the, the defeated city. Hecuba is his wife. And Pyrrhus is the son of Achilles who kills Priam. Uh, now, Hamlet starts off the speech. He remembers it, and he gets it going. The rugged Pyrrhus, who... He whose sable arms, black as his purpose, did the knight resemble when he lay couched in the ominous horse. That's the Trojan horse. That's how they snuck into the city. Notice Pyrrhus is all in black. What other character have we seen who's all in black? Hmm. Uh, As now this dread and black complexion smeared with heraldry more dismal. Head to foot now is he total ghouls, 
horridly tricked with blood of fathers, mothers, daughters, sons, baked and impasted with the parching streets that lend a tyrannous and a damned light to their lord's murder, roasted in wrath and fire, and thus o'ersized with coagulate gore, with eyes like carbuncles, the hellish Pyrrhus, old grandsire Priam, seeks. Now, He's saying that he's, you know, wearing black, but now he's covered in a heraldry more dismal, in blood. So he's he's red. And look at, the, again, the image of him as this hellish figure. If Pyrrhus is, as he is, a parallel to Hamlet, an avenging son, um, it, it's seen in a very uh, monstrous light. Uh, he, he's beast-like. He's uh, hellish. Um and then the, the player picks up the, the, the speech, says, Anon he finds him. That is, Pyrrhus finds uh, uh, Priam. Anon he finds him striking too short at Greeks. His antique sword, rebellious to his arm, lies where it falls, repugnant to command. Unequal matched, Pyrrhus at Priam drives. In rage, strikes wide, but with the whiff and wind of his fell sword, the unnerved father falls. So Priam is there, and he, he can't really fight. He's an old man. He's, he's uh, his antique, his old sword. Is, he's striking too short at the Greeks. He's not coming. Pyrrhus drives at him, but he's so fired up that he misses in rage he strikes wide but the very wind of his stroke knocks Priam over then senseless Ilum that's the city of Troy seeming to feel this blow with flaming top stoops to his base and with a hideous crash takes prisoner Pyrrhus ear here's another ear in the play so there's a you know in the in the fire and the the destruction and everything there's a big crash, and Pyrrhus stops to listen. For lo, his sword, which was declining on the milky head of Reverend Priam, seemed in the air to stick. And so a painted tyrant Pyrrhus stood, and, like a neutral to his will and matter, did nothing. So there's this pause for a minute where he, he hears something, and he holds his sword over Priam and does nothing. Now, of course, one of the interesting features of the play is how long Hamlet spends doing nothing in his revenge, and that is like, and also in very much unlike, this moment with, with Pyrrhus, because it's not just a moment. Uh, and Pyrrhus, though he's a parallel to Hamlet, is also very, very different. Um, but he, after Pyrrhus' pause, uh, line five four twenty eight, aroused vengeance sets him new a work, and never did the cyclops hammers fall on Mars's armor forged for proof eterne with less remorse than Pyrrhus' bleeding sword now falls on Priam. So he's hammering the way the cyclopses would hammer out the armor of the god of war. Of course, a cyclops has one eye; he can only see one thing. It's you know tunnel vision. Says, out, out, thou strumpet fortune. All you gods in general synod take away her power. 
Break all the spokes and fellies from her wheel, and bowl the round knave down the hill of heaven as low as to the fiends. And Polonius says, this is too long. Uh, now this line always gets a laugh, but most audiences feel like the speech is going on too long. But then Polonius says it's going on too long, and they laugh at it and say, oh, well, the, he's, that just shows that he doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, usually from the very audience that uh, uh, was feeling the speech might be going on a little long. So the first part of this speech that Hamlet gave described Pyrrhus, the avenger. The main part, the central part that the player uh, is speaking is about the uh, the vengeance that he takes. He pauses for a moment, but then Pyrrhus kills uh, Priam. And then the third part, this next section, is about the response of Hecuba. Uh, run barefoot, uh, but who, ah woe, hath seen the mobile queen run barefoot up and down, threatening the flames with bizen room, a clout upon that head where late the diadem stood, and for a robe about her lank and all o'er teamed loins, a blanket in the alarm of fear caught up. Here's this queen who used to wear a crown, and now it's just, you know, she's grabbed a blanket to put over her in, in the uh, middle of the night. Um, who this had seen with tongue and venom steeped against fortune state would treason have pronounced? But if the gods themselves did see her then, when she saw Pyrrhus make malicious sport in mincing with his sword her husband's limbs, the instant burst of clamor that she made unless things mortal move them not at all, would have made milch the burning eyes of heaven and passion in the gods. Now, Hecuba was the uh, almost the embodiment in classical mythology of grief. She was the grieving woman. And here we have her seeing her husband being killed. And notice uh, Polonius says, Look where he has not turned his color and has tears in his eyes. Pretty no more. So here the, the, the player has so worked himself up in the emotion of the scene that he is crying about it. Uh, you know, he's, he's a really good actor. He's delivering the emotion. Um, and Hamlet tells them as they're leaving that he wants them to pl- put on a, a play for the court. He wants them to put on The Murder of Gonzago. And he asks, line 479, uh, you could, for a need, study a speech of some dozen or sixteen lines which I would set down and insert in it, could you not? I, my lord. Very well. Follow that lord. And look, you mock him not. Uh, so he's got this idea. He wants them to play this tragedy, the murder of Gonzago, and he's going to uh, add in a little extra speech into it. Uh, now, we don't really understand what all of this is about. We won't until after Hamlet's soliloquy. Uh, so let's look at Hamlet's soliloquy at the end of Act Two. He starts off, Now I am alone. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. Is it not monstrous that this player here, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, could force his soul so to his own conceit 
that from her working all his visage wand, tears in his eyes, distraction in his aspect, a broken voice, and his whole function suiting with forms to his conceit, and all for nothing, for Hecuba. What's Hecuba to him, or he to her, that he should weep for her? What would he do had he the motive and the cue for passion that I have? He would drown the stage with tears, and cleave the general ear with horrid speech, make mad the guilty and appall the free, confound the ignorant and amaze indeed the very faculties of eyes and ears. So Hamlet begins setting up a, a parallel, as so many parallels are set up in this play, between himself and this actor. And he says, here, this actor was able to have so much emotion from something that was just fictional. And yet here am I, who have a real uh, situation going on, and I, I'm not able to generate the emotion I need to. Now, of course, one of the kind of beautiful ironies of this is that we're watching this and we're watching Hamlet, who is actually also an actor on the stage who is now getting himself emotionally worked up about something. And we are impressed by how good his acting is. At the same time, he's telling about how he is impressed by how good the other guy's acting was. Uh, it's a wonderful kind of self-referential moment that Shakespeare has woven into the play here. Um and that idea could force his soul so to his own conceit, his his idea, the con a conceit, an idea uh, that he could he could work up the uh, the emotion that way. Um, and, and the the theatrical language he used, the motive and the cue for passion. Those are you know what's my motive is what actors are always saying, and cues you know knowing your your cues for the uh, the play. Um, so he would do all of this. And Hamlet compares himself unfavorably. He says, Yet I, a dull and muddy-metaled rascal, peak like John of Dreams, unpregnant of my cause, and can say nothing. There again, that idea of saying nothing, of being silent, comes in. He says, No, not for a king upon whose property and most dear life a damned defeat was made. Am I a coward? Who calls me villain, breaks my pate across, plucks off my beard, and blows it in my face? Uh, now, to pluck, some, pluck hair off someone's beard was a particular insult. In It was like kind of tweaking somebody's nose, but it was more serious. It was kind of dueling words. But notice he doesn't say pluck hair off my beard. He's pluck off my beard as if he were wearing a fake theatrical beard, another kind of buried theatrical metaphor there, tweaks me by the nose, gives me the lie in the throat as deep as to the lungs. Who does me this? Ha! Swoons! I should take it, for, I can, for it cannot be, but I am pigeon-livered and lack gall to make oppression bitter, or ere this I should have fatted all the region kites with this slave's awful. I said, if, you know, all these things that they would say, well he would have to agree to them because if, if he were really doing what he was supposed to do, Claudius's body would be out there feeding the carrion. One thing that is interesting about this is that Hamlet brings up the idea that he hasn't been 
focusing on his revenge, but neither has the audience. For all of Act Two, we've been absorbed in the scene with Ophelia and with the the plots that Polonius is coming up with and with the banter with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, uh, all of this. And I think most audiences are as shocked as Hamlet is to be reminded of the revenge. It's like, oh, yeah, wait, this is a revenge tragedy. Uh, but I think we have been uh, just as guilty of Hamlet of not focusing on it. Um, so he goes on, line 519, bloody, body villain, remorseless, treacherous, lecherous, kindless villain. Why, what an ass am I? This is most brave that I, the son of a dear father, murdered, prompted to my revenge by heaven and hell, must like a whore unpack my heart with words and fall a-cursing like a very drab, a stallion, fie upon it, about my brains. Uh, There again, the the theatrical metaphor of prompted, the prompter who would tell you what to say. Um, And again, an audience to Hamlet is just as impressed by the actor playing Hamlet here as Hamlet in the play was impressed by the player doing the speech about uh, Priam and and Pyrrhus. It's a kind of a wonderful, and most people don't notice that, but we are. Uh, This is great acting. Um, Usually it's played, especially when it's played by a great actor. And then we get a shift. Line 528. I have heard that guilty creatures sitting at a play have, by the very cunning of the scene, been struck so to the soul that presently they have proclaimed their malefactions. For murder, though it have no tongue, will speak with most miraculous organ. There again, that uh, that dichotomy of speech and silence here. Even though it may not confess, there is a way for us to know what it, it is saying. Um, and so Hamlet comes up with this idea. Notice this is very much like what Polonius was talking about at the beginning of the scene, of the, of the act. He said, by indirections, find directions out. That's exactly what Hamlet is doing here. Hamlet, who is probably the least like Polonius of any character in the play, and yet here they seem oddly similar uh, in these these spying schemes that they have to kind of indirectly trick somebody into giving something away. Um, He says, I'll have these players play something like the murder of my father before mine uncle. I'll observe his looks. I'll tent him to the quick. If he do blench, I know my course. So, now we understand the relevance of the murder of Gonzago and why Hamlet's going to add a speech to it. He's going to set up so that they play something that resembles how he knows now that his father was murdered, see how Claudius reacts to it. And that will be the confession. Again, the murder, though it have no tongue, will speak with most miraculous organ. And look at what he says, the reason he's doing this. The spirit that I have seen may be a devil, 
and the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. Yea, and perhaps out of my weakness and my melancholy, as he is very potent with such spirits, abuses me to damn me. Now, here again, I don't think anybody, any audience who had ever seen the play had thought before Hamlet mentioned it, you know, maybe the ghost of Hamlet was a devil sent to tempt him. Uh, I think we've all kind of accepted the, the, the ghost as very authoritative. But now that Hamlet's mentioned it, you think, oh, yeah, and he was talking about how he was damned in hell and all of that and, you know, set to for the day confined to fires and all of that. Um, so Hamlet has raised doubt in an audience that didn't really have any doubt before this. Um, he says, I'll have grounds more relative than this. Now, again, this is so Shakespearean. The word relative is exactly the wrong word. It should be absolute. I'll have grounds more absolute, more certain than this. But he doesn't say that. He says, I'll have grounds more relative. And we know what the word relative has to mean here, cogent, relating to the thing, but the literal, usual meaning of the word is precisely the opposite of what Hamlet has to be meaning. Uh, again, this play is so full of these kinds of uncertainties and ambiguities and, and uh, uh, e- even a little line like that. But then he ends on a nice, rousing couplet. The play's the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. We've not only got that alliteration, but those rousing uh, alliterations. Catch the conscience of the king. Um, so now Hamlet's got a clear plan. He's going to uh, make sure that the word of the ghost is true. He's going to uh, publicly expose Claudius's guilt. Uh, he's, everything is set to move forward. And we'll see the way that it moves forward in Act 3. Now, in Act 3, there's several things to look at. One is, uh, the first and most obvious one, is probably the most, well, not probably, it is the most famous soliloquy, the most famous speech in all of Shakespeare, to be or not to be. And I want you to look very carefully at that speech and think what what Hamlet's arguments are And think also about the context of it. Why is he making these arguments here? And you might also think about how this, why this soliloquy is different from the others. What's what's different about the the, the tone or the placement of this soliloquy compared to the others that we've seen? Then we'll see Hamlet confronting Ophelia. Um, And think about how how we understand Hamlet's attitude towards Ophelia. How does he feel towards her? How do we know how he feels towards her? Then we get, uh, we'll also have the play within a play. So remember, they're, they're performing the murder of Gonzago. And look at how that is played out. There's a a dumb show that is a kind of a pantomime where they, they act out the, the play before they uh, speak the lines. And think about that, about what it looks like, uh, how, think about, imagine how it would be performed. And look at the 
the play within a play itself. What is it all about? That We've got the player king and the player queen and the murderer. Uh, and think about how each of them is parallel and maybe not parallel with uh, Claudius and uh, Gertrude and old King Hamlet. Um, we'll also, of course, get Polonius, uh, Polonius's, uh, Claudius's reaction to the play, which is also very interesting. Uh, and the, the scene will end with Hamlet confronting Gertrude. There's a, you know, there's an, again, parallel scenes. He has a confrontation with uh, Ophelia and a confrontation with Gertrude. Think about the way that those two scenes are paralleled and the way that they're contrasted with each other. Uh, so that will be, uh, you know, plenty of food for thought as you're looking at Act Three of Hamlet. Uh, should you have questions, the email address is drmarkwomack at gmail.com. Thanks for your attention. I'll talk to you next time.